Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching with TBA rabbinic intern Joshua Jacobs. For the teaching today, uh, I have a couple of sources that I was debating whether I wanted to deliver in a more frontal fashion, given our medium, or put the sources up before Shabbat so you could print them out and we can study them together. I hope it's okay that for this one I opted for a bit of, of a more frontal one, at least at, at, at the start. But I'm hoping that afterwards we'll have plenty of time to discuss uh, at least the way that I weave uh, and understand the texts together. Uh, so I hope that's okay, and, and, and afterwards we can discuss it. Um, since there is uh, Midrash uh, on Torah from here, and because I neglected to say La'asok B'divrei Torah uh, before the Torah service, I hope it's okay that it'll suffice, I say it now, um, to, to give Kavod Torah for the Torah that we'll be touching on in, this, in, the, in the learning. So with that, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam La'asok B'divrei Torah. A while ago, I, I gave a teaching for Seuda Shlishit, where I, I quoted from East of Eden by John Steinbeck. And, and I feel like I do that a lot. I feel like I overly rely on, on, on East of Eden, which I feel it, it bothers me and I think it's not fair because I should really read more books and I should bring other books to, to our attention for the sake of keeping it new and exciting. So, so I've read a bunch of books this year, and I found something that I think you're really going to like. It's from East of Eden by John Steinbeck. He writes, I believe that there is one story in the world, and only one. Humans are caught in their lives, in their thoughts, in their hungers and ambitions, in their avarice and cruelty, and in their kindness and generosity too, in a net of good and evil. There is no other story. My first thought about that is that that can't be right. Every story? What about ours? Uh, for Seder Ashley Sheet, we, we look ahead to the next Torah reading uh, for next week, and we're coming up on Rosh Hashanah. So I want to talk about the, the Akedah, the Binding of Isaac. And I'm wondering if that fits into to Steinbeck's categorization here. Um, is this also, at its core, about good and evil? While there's a rich tradition of wrestling with the Akedah, why God tests Abraham this way, how Abraham could have come so close to sacrificing his son, I've always understood the Akedah to be a love story between God and Abraham. During that Seudashli sheet teaching, I, I brought Soren Kierkegaard's interpretation that Abraham's great faith isn't his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. It's his firm belief that God would never actually have him go through with it, that the judge of the earth would indeed do justly. And so ultimately, maybe the Akedah is an indictment of a prevailing practice of the time, child sacrifice, and the first step towards the kind of worship God wants, prayer. But however you read it, it just doesn't seem to me to be about good versus evil. It seems to be about love. But in the interest of bringing at least different Jewish books to our attention, I, I, I wanted to bring the Midrash, a creative bod a body of rabbinic literature which explores the same story uh, in the following way. In the Akedah, we read that Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. In other words, Abraham loved to obey God's will, hurried to do it, even waking up early to carry out the task. The Midrash asks why. Abraham was wealthy and had servants who could have loaded the donkey for him. He had Eliezer, whom he entrusts with sacred responsibilities. Why wake up early and do it himself? It then brings another biblical story, that of Bilam. 
Bilam is a foreign prophet hired to curse the children of Israel. We read, and Bilam rose up in the morning and saddled his donkey. The Midrash asked the same question. Why? Surely he had servants who could have loaded the donkey for him. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai answers, Ahava mekalkelet et Ashura, vesina mekalkelet et Ashura. Love disrupts the natural order and hate disrupts the natural order. Even if it may have been the norm at that time for servants to load the donkeys, Abraham's love for his creator and Bilam's love of, of money, of, of self-advancement, uh, uh, allowing him to respond to the king uh, uh, who, who wanted him to carry out a task of hate, it disrupts, in both cases, it disrupts the perceived natural order. And I think that rings true today. We've been quarantined now for six months. It's affected all of us differently, but for the most part, it's been a struggle. Like Abraham, we've been tested and tasked with making sacrifices. As a result, family dynamics have been strained. Even relationships have dissolved. We need to create space and be there for each other to process all of that. But it's also important to note that at the same time, some families and relationships are emerging from this experience stronger than ever. It seems like every time I check Instagram, another friend just got engaged or had a Zoom wedding because they just couldn't wait until this is over to share their lives together. How is that possible? How are any of us actually getting closer in an era of social distance? Maybe it's because love disrupts the natural order. A natural order which, according to The Shining, should have all of us sticking our heads in doorways screaming, here's Johnny. But for the most part, we're not. And miraculously, many of us are finding that six months of each other isn't enough. We want We want more. And yet what we're living through has further exposed how wide certain gaps in society are. The fight for equal rights and treatment of black lives continues to bring systemic racism to light. The cruelty we have witnessed is heartbreaking, enraging, and baffling to anyone who believes in a natural order of B'Tselem Elohim, that we are all created in the image of God and deserving of dignity and respect. What could possibly be strong enough to question that? Hate, it seems, disrupts the natural order too. As the Midrash continues, we begin to see how the Akedah might actually resonate with Steinbeck's thinking, that there's only ever been good versus evil, because it continues to put biblical stories in conversation with each other. Joseph, following years of estrangement from his father, and after his brother sold him to Egypt as a slave, it says, quote, made ready his chariot to meet Israel, his father. But then Pharaoh, years later, quote, made ready his chariot to pursue after the children of Israel to reinstate slavery. Joseph, a slave in Egypt, defied the natural order through God's love and rises up the ranks until he is able to prepare a royal chariot to greet his father in love. Pharaoh prepares his chariot with a heart hardened by hate to reinstitute an unnatural institution. And all of a sudden, it is about good versus evil because it's about love versus hate. Two themes at the core of our human story and Jewish story. The Midrash concludes, let saddling counteract saddling. Let preparing counteract preparing. Let the saddling of the donkey, the preparing of the chariot, let one counteract each other in each time. Essentially, it's our sacred mission as a Jewish people to respond to evil and hate in the world with acts of good and love, to counteract. And through our behavior, we can only hope to merit God's attention, like Abraham who cleaved the wood of the sacrifice in love. So the Midrash teaches, God cleaved the Red Sea in two and brought us to safety. It's easy to feel like we're drowning in a sea of hate right now. And in our darker moments, feel convinced that this is how our story ends. But love defies the natural order. We can respond to social distance by growing closer. We can cleave to one another as the waters part and we march on toward liberation. So that concludes my my frontal presentation of it. Um, I want to quick 
time check and open it up for a discussion. Uh, Kenji, can, uh, where, where are we on time? We're at 7.15. Okay, great. Yeah, so we're good. We have time. Um, so go ahead. Uh, feel free to, to uh, unmute yourself uh, and we can discuss. And I'm happy to give more, more prompts for thinking. Mostly I'm, I'm wondering if you buy uh, my reading of the two texts. This is the Midrash, uh, which, which reads these different moments as sort of uh, examples of love disrupting the natural order, examples of hate disrupting the natural order, how both have the power to do that. Um, and whether this falls under Steinbeck's sort of thesis that the only story ever is good versus evil. I wonder if you agree, disagree. And also, I think love and, and hate, uh, good and evil, is more complicated than just two uh, separate things, right? I mean, often they, they counteract. They, I mean, not just counteract. They, they cooperate. They, they're part of the same, the roots of the same tree. Um, so, you know, if, if good and evil were separate, it would be two stories, but it's, it, if Steinbeck's saying it's one story, maybe it's because good and evil really are related and work together in a lot of ways. And it's too basic just to say, okay, we have to respond to hate with love. I mean, often you can, you can love somebody one day and, and, and feel hate the next. And it, it just isn't so cut and dry. Um, and ultimately I think it's about leaning towards, towards good and towards love, but understanding how, the Yetzer HaTov and Hara operate together. Anyway, all food for thought. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts and reactions and responses. Josh, this is Brand. I always say, I mean, I'm fond of saying that love and hate are opposite sides of the same coin. Yeah. And what I mean by that is, is that it, in order to really hate something, you have to at some point really appreciate it or love it. They don't, they're not distinct, really, just like you said. And I, I often draw on the nature of marital discord, where you people develop, develop severe hatred of their spouse, you know, o- only as a result of that extreme closeness. And the, so there's something about the two that are intertwined, and that's why we can never get rid of them. They go hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I think that's beautifully said. Yeah, I've always thought that in terms of Yetzer Tov and Yetzer Hara, that life can't just be about trying to blot out our Yetzer Hara, because why would God have given us both? I mean, there's got to be use to it, value to it. So I think it's the, 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 the more difficult task, the more sophisticated way of looking at it must be that we have to channel it for good. We have to use it uh, in a way. Joey, I think I see your hand. Please. Great. <clears throat> yes. So I also have heard that the opposite of love is indifference. Right. Because because uh, 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 I've also heard that uh, that hate when you hate something or someone you still care about it or them, whereas if you don't if, if you're indifferent you don't care about the person that you don't love or or strongly dislike would probably be a better way to say it than hate depending <laughs> on the situation I guess. Yeah, thank you. I think that really uh, uh, cor- corresponds with what Brant just said about you have to, in order to hate something, you, you have to have also loved it at one point. That that idea that it's the opposite of of love isn't hate; it's indifference. Um, there's that quote, right? That the world doesn't end with a bang, but with a whimper. That the end of humanity isn't some big display of of hate. It's it's indifference. It's our our failure to be triggered by what's going on and call to action. It's letting things sort of be destroyed. Um, at least that's how I, I, I read that quote, but yeah, that's what made it made me think of that as well. Uh, more thoughts, more reactions to the Midrash to, to Steinbeck. How are people feeling in their own lives? Do, do they, do you feel like 
the quarantine experience is uh, allowing you to come closer to your core people? Is it is it uh, uh, more you know like exacerbating those relationships, straining? And you don't have to be too personal, but I'm just wondering. In, in general, do you feel like you're still able to uh, find connection and uh, uh, and deepen relationships, or is it just so isolating and difficult? And 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 ultimately, I think it's both. Like like we've been talking about, I think it oscillates. But would be interested to hear. Uh, yeah, Joey. Well, uh, it's not as much of a problem for me being isolated because I have an essential job. Oh, that's good. Yeah, it definitely helps, right? Um, I know a lot right. of us are struggling with with work and not being able to to work or furlough or laying off. So very lucky and and blessed to be able to have a working job. And and I feel that way too with Betham being able to continue on as an intern in this capacity. I'm really grateful to everybody for that. Any more thoughts and reflections? Um, hi, this is Marlies. Uh, hi, Marlies. I, um, I guess I would say it's, okay. since I live with other people and I, I feel close to the people I live with, and then it's been sort of hard having, you know, in being careful in uh, this time of distancing and not being able to get as close to other people that I really care about. Yeah. 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 I think that's what resonated to me about the Akedah and sacrifice, right? That it's, you have your core people, the people you're living with at home, and it maybe feels like you've had to sacrifice these other relationships with people who aren't in your immediate circle and how difficult a sacrifice that is. And uh, yeah, there's, there's no immediate silver lining to that, just sort of recognizing how difficult that is and um, maybe understanding it within this context of love disrupting the natural order, hoping that that ultimately those relationships will be able to weather this storm based on the strength of, of that love. And, but that doesn't make the immediate any easier. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's always troubled me about the Akeda is that because Abraham did this thing, God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you as plentiful as the stars in the sky and the, 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 the sand of the seas or, or the sand on the sea. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we as a Jewish people throughout all of history to, it, it seem to be a minority. So I always wonder what that prophecy means, mm-hmm. you know, about being as you know numerous. As, and all I can figure is, is that that statement maybe applies to all the children of Abraham and not just the Jews, because in that sense, they are plentiful. But that's not a very Jewish answer. But that's my issue with the Akeda. I never know what that actually means. That yeah. numerous statement. I don't know how that you interpret that. That's been my question. I think that's that's really interesting. And and I, I'd love to give it a crack and also open it up to the room. First, uh, Kenji, uh, 730 is sort of our marker for, for transitioning to Mariv. Can I have a time check? 723. 723? Yeah. Yes. Perfect. Will you give me like a one minute warning to 730? Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, I mean, the way that I initially react to that is there are times in the Torah where uh, there are numbers that are used that aren't meant to be literal. Um, maybe like sevenfold, right? Like uh, Cain's punishment of se- sevenfold. There are certain numbers, at least with uh, Tzioni Zevet, the, uh, my teacher at, at Ziegler, he understands these to be sort of, um, it doesn't literally always mean sevenfold. It's just a number to, to express a long time sort of like a phrase being used. That's not a satisfactory answer to me because it's like, so, but, but basically that's saying it's maybe understanding it more as a phrase and figure of speech that you will be very numerous. 
and not a literal, you will be as numerous as the sand and the stars. Uh, and in which case that prophecy certainly was fulfilled given that we are very numerous, but you're right. And I actually have thought similar to you, right? If, if you count for the children of Abraham, then we really are <laughs> majority in that way. Uh, just something happened along the line to split us apart, but, <laughs> but otherwise we really would. Um, I don't know. Do other people react to that? Have any different answers? Yeah, but it's interesting. I mean, yeah, I, I, for me, I'm satisfied to feel like that prophecy is fulfilled given being very numerous, but, but you're right. It, it doesn't seem like we're stars and, and sand necessarily. Except in New York and yeah. Israel and Los Angeles. Other than right. that, no. <laughs> right, exactly. And I think there are beautiful things about uh, just the poetry of stars and sand too, you know, to focus not on the number aspect, but um, you know, the, the uniqueness of stars and their ability to be a light unto the nations, right? It's sort of, there are other, there are other ways in which hopefully those, that promise is fulfilled in, in meaningful ways. What do you think about, I mean, do you think uh, every story can be boiled down to good and evil? I like how the Midrash did that. I, I, I like that at how it put, you know, Midrash often puts different psukim in context with one another. And in that way, that's how it interprets. And I thought it was really clever the way it, you know, it, it highlighted, oh, Joseph made ready his chariot, so did Pharaoh. And you can see how that's good versus evil playing out in our history and how hopefully Jews can be you know, on the side of good always. Um, although you know, whether or not that's true in actuality, we hope, we hope for. And, and hopefully we can counteract and correct the ways in which we're deficient. But um, I, I thought, I, I mean, I... I bought the Midrash. I, I liked what it was doing. Do people think that it's, it's just sort of coincidental? They're just pulling phrases that connect. Did, do people, were people moved by that or kind of underwhelmed? Well, I think that, that it, it makes sense to view the world that way in terms of how the Midrash says in terms of good and evil. I don't think the world is that way. I think that the, the, based on my years of experience, the world is rather gray. Yeah. But what I mean by that is there are good people who sometimes do mean bad things, and there are bad people that sometimes do really good things, and that no particular person is good or evil, and it's that constant struggle that we try to do more good and evil. We always have the opportunity to shuva and to improve. Right. But I actually think the world's kind of gray. And yeah. that what that's really representing is the struggle in each of us to be more good than we are evil. And that it's somewhat presumptuous to think that we could always be good. And it, we should always try not to be evil. But the reality is we all come down somewhere in the gray. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's too basic to say it's uh, anybody is just, and I think Steinbeck actually does a great job of that uh, in East of Eden and, and other stories of just highlighting the complexity of every human. Uh, his characters are always very multi-layered and faceted and you have moments of, of real evil, but then also redemption always. Uh, and it's, it's easy to lose sight of that. Often I think we, we label things one or the other. Um, but you're right. I, I, how important it is to recognize that we're, we're both and that it's, it's never so simple. It's gray. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. 
For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.